Hello and welcome to For Flying Out Loud, where we continue our mission to help inspire, empower and help all of our listeners to dream bigger. There could be few passenger aircraft more iconic than a mighty Jumbo 747, an engineering marvel and one of the most successful airliners ever built. I've flown some amazing aircraft in my career and would love to fly the 747, but for me, that chance will probably never come. Today, though, we're going to head out on another voyage of inspiration and speak with one hugely experienced pilot of this legendary aircraft. So without further ado, let's get started. New concepts of passenger handling and service had to be developed to meet the needs of passengers in the jetliner of the 70s. New seats, new decor and facilities, new ground handling ideas, new schedules, new dimensions in passenger comfort. These were the challenges we faced in developing our approach to the 747. Spacious comfort for every passenger. He is a highly experienced pilot and training captain who has clocked up thousands of hours flying a mighty jumbo jet. At the end of 2020, he was in command of one of the last ever 747s to be retired from British Airways when the retro-liveried Landor Jumbo landed into Dunsfold Airfield, never to fly again. Today, I'm speaking with Magdi Sarafi, a good friend of mine about everything Jumbo and his path to achieving his dream. Magdi, welcome to For Flying Out Loud. Hi, Andrew. Great to be with you. Great to have you, Magdi. And uh, before we start, I should tell my listeners, I try and make some efforts to make sure the quality of this podcast is um, as good as it can possibly be, certainly from a, a sound, if not content basis. And for the listeners that can't see you out here at the moment, Magdi, would you like to tell everyone where you're currently sat? I am lying on the floor in a children's wigwam. <laughs> I don't think, I think that's probably one of the more random locations because I was trying to achieve sound quality. Well, thanks very much for making the effort, Magdi. But before we get started uh, on talking about the jumbo, I'd like to find out a bit more about what you got in, what got you rather inspired to becoming a pilot in the first place. Well, I can say that I was one of those children that was utterly enthralled the very first time I put a foot on an aircraft. And I can remember... In terms of family holidays, for me, the best part of any holiday was always the flight there. And then it was a case of ticking the days off until it was time for the flight back. So that was a big part of my growing up and my childhood and certainly sowed a seed in terms of uh, that passion for flying. I've also got a little bit of aviation in my blood. I've got an older brother who incidentally was born on exactly the same day as me, just uh, 15 years earlier. And he's also a commercial airline pilot. So I guess maybe a little bit uh, in, in my genes as well. I actually know your uh, your stepbrother, um, Andy. He's uh, a, a really fanatical glider pilot. In fact, I think he's got something around 6,000 hours gliding. I don't think many commercial pilots even have that amount of time in commercial aircraft. He's, he's very, very good, isn't he? He is. And it's his passion. And, and that's pretty much his whole life is, is gliding. Yeah, I can understand why, for those that know how fanatical I'm about gliding. Um, your first instinct, though, Magdi, uh, wasn't to get into commercial aviation. It was the same sort of instinct as, as mine, and that was to apply to the military. And in fact, in 1994, you were successfully being offered uh, sponsorship to go through university with the Royal Air Force. Can you tell us a bit more about that process and why you didn't ultimately pursue that career path? 
Yeah, sure. So uh, as a child, uh, I had this passion to to make a, my way in commercial aviation. And at that time, I spent a lot of time researching what possible paths were open to me. Back in that time, there wasn't that much opportunity for sponsorship. It was a, a bit of a lull in the airline industry. And so obviously the military path was one that I seriously looked at. And uh, back in 1994, I ended up at uh, RAF Cranwell doing a selection program, uh, which was for a scholarship for university. And, and that process, that program on that sponsorship would have actually given you quite a bit of cash to go through university and ultimately steered your path to joining the military, wouldn't it? Absolutely, yeah. The uh, the amount of money which was offered was was incredibly generous and uh, and certainly very tempting. So you you and I went through. In fact, I went for my initial uh, flying scholarship with the Air Force at RAF Biggin Hill, which then subsequently moved probably around 1994 to Cranwell. So we've both been through that process of going through the aptitude tests, going through all the leadership tests, the interviews, the group exercises, and you know I. I can't say that I felt a complete natural at it. I'm not sure many people do when they're young people, but I still enjoyed the process. How about you, Maddy? Did you enjoy that process? You obviously did well enough, but was there anything about it that made you think this is, you know, this is the career for me, or actually this maybe isn't the career for me? Yeah, it was a real eye opener. Um, I think it was my first proper experience of going through a selection process, and uh, when I got there. It was quite overawing. Um, it was an incredible two days of my life, but it also gave me a little insight into what it was I would be signing up for if I was to continue down that path. And ultimately, uh, I knew in my heart that commercial aviation was where I wanted my future to lie. And having gone away and reflected on it, even as a, a sort of 16, 17-year-old, I realised that that commitment to a life in the military... Uh, wasn't necessarily what I was looking for and therefore with great reluctance I decided that it wasn't right for me to accept that scholarship and I uh, and I continued my journey down a different path. I mean that's a huge decision and those that have listened to other episodes of Flying Out Loud um, they'll all, most people then that will know that I'm an ex-Navy military pilot but I did apply for the same sponsorships go through university and again once I left university to join the Royal Air Force and I was unsuccessful in in those applications so here we are we've got me who was desperate to do it and was unsuccessful in applying to the Royal Air Force and we've got you who were successful in applying to the Royal Air Force through this this sponsorship scheme and turned it down what advice would you give to any young people out there at the moment that then that are perhaps thinking you know do I follow this military pathway or do I follow a pathway towards commercial aviation? I think for me, uh, as a as a youngster, really the be all and end all was to get into a career in aviation, and I think I probably was of a mindset that it didn't matter what route that path took, and it was only after having spent two days at Cranwell that I really understood the uh, the commitment I was making, and I think I would say to anybody who was in that position, um, sign up if you are offered if it's a career in the military that you are after, but don't necessarily use it as a stepping stone uh, as a way into aviation, because I don't think that is the best way to, to go about it. You have to have that desire and that real motivation to follow that lifestyle. And uh, ultimately for me, I realised it wasn't there. And I, and I look back and I, I, ha- I certainly have regrets, but I also know that I, I made the right decision. 
Yeah, it's interesting. And honestly, to give that feedback, I fly with quite a lot of commercial pilots that I think applied to the military, maybe weren't successful or maybe later in life thought, actually, I wish I had gone and done that. But having gone and pursued a military flying career myself, it's certainly one that requires total devotion total dedication to to the to the service that you join to the to great britain and um and the commonwealth that you're, you're helping to defend and, and of course one day you may be called upon to put your life in the line of fire to protect your country and i think a lot of people do need to give that serious thought before they embark upon a career in the military um but i'd also say that anyone that says that military pilots are always better than than commercial pilots that's also not true from my perspective i've flown with military pilots and pilots have never had any military training and uh, i can say that both sides there are some exceptional uh people flying these aircraft and operating them so ultimately, you headed off to university to study business management. Did you still want to be a pilot at that stage, having turned down this sponsorship with the Air Force? Or do you sort of just thought, well, do you know what, I'll just go and put that on the back burner and do something different for a while? No, absolutely. It was still a very strong desire uh, right through my sort of teenage years that uh, a career in aviation was desperately what I wanted to achieve. However, I was also realistic in that at that time, the opportunities were probably just as sparse as they are in this day and age. And I think I realised that I had to have a plan B, and that didn't mean I was any less committed to uh, being uh, successful in in pursuing an aviation career, but I also knew that I had to have something to fall back on. And for me, university was probably that plan B that I, I had in my back pocket should I not have got into aviation for whatever reason. I think that's really wise as well. Again, for young people, I receive huge amounts of inquiries from young people wanting to know what to do, how to steer their career. Should they go to university? Should they consider working somewhere else before they start out on flying training? Um, not everyone has to go to university. I would say that clearly getting a degree is, makes you arguably more employable in more fields, more areas, but um, you don't have to. But I think having a plan B um certainly for the short term if you maybe complete flying training and there's no job out there um, on completion having a plan b is always a very good idea um but you still wanted to pursue it and actually just um towards the end of your time at university you were i guess doing some sort of summer job work like like we all do and you elected to start out on this pathway of becoming a pilot so can you tell us a bit more about that magby yeah absolutely um i got to a point where I realised that um, I had this sort of pipe dream of breaking into the industry, but I felt like I had to do something, I think, to prove to myself that I could do it, but also to to demonstrate my motivation to other people. So during my university summer holidays, uh, I used to work. I did a couple of different jobs. One of them was working on a council play scheme, looking after lots of uh, very naughty children. Um, and then in the evenings I was, uh, I was working in a bar and I did that for pretty much the whole summer and that allowed me to pull enough money together to then go and have a go at some PPL single engine flying. And you, you sort of had a go, had a go at it, and then ultimately set out on this pathway to complete your PPL. And I'm a bit blown away by by the the stats uh, here. So can you tell us a bit more about what happened with your PPL training, the amount of where, where you did it, how you did it, and and how long it took you? Yeah, absolutely. So I did quite a lot of research and had a lot of input from my older brother as well, who was quite au fait with um, with various schools, and 
as a university student, it's of no surprise that uh, finances were always going to be the uh, the overriding factor. So ultimately, I picked a very backwater airfield, a place called Welshpool, uh, which lies um, on the sort of Welsh-English border. And I think because they were such a cut-off part of the world, the only way they could get people to come there to fly was A, to offer an intensive residential course, but also to offer, offer it at a really good rate. So I think off the top of my head, back then, my PPL cost me something like four, four and a half grand, which I reckon was about half of what it would cost if I'd done it in the standard way of our building over a period of months. And how long did it take you to uh, sort of start your PPL, complete all the exams, all the flying and get issued your licence? How long was that time period? Yeah, so interestingly, I uh, after I agreed to, to chat to you on this podcast, I dug out my first ever logbook just to have a look at the dates. And roughly speaking, from doing my first ever flight, uh, or my first hour of PPL training, to doing my GFT was just over three weeks. And that included, obviously, <laughs> 45 hours of, of flight training, but also all of my written exams as well. I think that's, honestly, I've, I've never heard of anybody, if anyone's listening out there and completed a PPL in less than three and a half weeks, I'd like to hear from you. I think that's a that's a mega, uh, mega timescale. Um, you mentioned me uh, to me, though, Magdy, that you, you said you probably weren't good enough to become an airline pilot and that you also said to me you realised you weren't a natural pilot. Why did you say that to me? Yeah, it was um, it was a really interesting experience because actually, as a, a young boy, I'd kind of probably taken it for granted that if I wanted to to fly, then I'd be able to. And I think as that sort of typical youngster with a lot of bravado and confidence, it never crosses your mind that actually maybe you won't be good enough to do it and maybe it's not the right career for you. And I pitched up at uh, Welshpool and I found it hard. I found it incredibly challenging in lots of different ways. And I realised at that point that if I was going to make a a career in this game, it was going to be very much on the back of a lot of graft and a lot of effort and uh, and a lot of perspiration rather than inspiration. Yeah, it's really interesting because clearly, you know, being a pilot is quite an attractive job role for like for any young kid out there you're probably thinking well i'm going to be you know an astronaut or 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 pilot or anything like that but of course lots of people racing driver um think think set out with their dream and maybe some dreams are like very very difficult to attain formula one racing driver lewis hamilton style for example but being a pilot i'd say is in one of those sort of categories that is quite challenging and it's it's not something you just end up walking into and most people don't anyway myself included and just finding it super easy um it can be an awful lot of hard work. So that's probably quite a good lesson to learn early on. But I have to say, uh, completing your PPL in three and a half weeks is some sort of record, I reckon. So um, being a natural pilot or not, uh, that hard work and that determination obviously played a huge factor in you successfully completing that course in record time. Um, so you've, you've completed your PPL now and now we're moving post to university uh, and you've got, got this license. And I guess at this stage, you're idea is to self-fund your own flying training Magdi but you didn't obviously go straight into that you needed to find some way of self-funding it so what happened after university? Yeah absolutely so as I got towards uh, a point of graduating from university um, I was aware that potentially the industry was going to start moving in terms of possible options for sponsorship 
and actually a number of airlines were potentially going to be looking at offering sponsorship to um, to youngsters via their, uh, if you like, their cadet schemes. Um, I also knew that those would be incredibly oversubscribed and incredibly competitive. And again, I wanted to give myself the best chance of um, exploring every avenue of getting into the industry. So I decided that having graduated, I would pursue a career elsewhere and one that hopefully would allow me to put money aside and if necessary, go down that sort of modular, uh, more gradual hour building route. Um, I, I was determined that I would get to a point where I would break into the industry. And as a youngster, sort of 2021, I was quite happy that time was on my side and I would take that time to uh, achieve my dream. So you actually went off to work for a big consultancy company. I don't know much about consultancy firms, but I'd, I've heard of this particular one, Anderson Consulting. And that's a that's a pretty sort of high flying job, isn't it? What tell us more about that first employment for you, Magby? Yes, I was very fortunate um, as I went round the the milk round at university in my final year, which was all of the big employers coming to the university to look for graduates. And I went through numerous interviews, uh, of which some of them were for companies that I didn't even want to work for. Um, I was very fortunate in that um, on the day that I did my Anderson consulting interview, uh, the stars sort of lined up for me and uh, I had a a great interview with a very nice chap with some great rapport and uh, I was very fortunate to be offered a place uh, as a a graduate uh, employee by Anderson Consulting and I started there very soon after I, uh, I graduated from university. Um, pretty pretty good money, I'd imagine, as well, working, sort of living the London lifestyle. That must have been quite quite a cool first job, I guess, out of university. Yeah, it was brilliant. Um, they, they paid really well. Uh, it was eye-watering amounts of money for a, a young, broke student. Uh, they put me up in London, and I enjoyed that. And, and it's the, probably the only time that I've spent any time living in London. But I thoroughly enjoyed it. I, uh, I played hard and I worked hard. And uh, and ultimately, it was a, a fantastic opportunity, and I was very grateful to uh, to them. They were a great company who really looked after their employees and really treated us as if we were important. And I, I've always remembered that. <laughs> you remembered it, but for a short period of time, on one particular day, you didn't remember it when an advert for a cadetship type scheme appeared for British Airways. And of course, this was the opportunity you'd been hoping might come around. And uh, you weren't entirely honest with Anderson Consulting around that time, were you? No, a- absolutely right. Um, I- I'm slightly <laughs> embarrassed to admit that uh, the the advert came out in the Times, um, and it was for the British Airways cadet scheme and I got my application in really quickly because I knew that was important to do because again I knew they would be oversubscribed by lots and lots of people hoping to uh, to, to tread down the same path and I was at fairly short notice invited to attend the British Airways recruitment centre uh, which in the day was uh, on the Bath Road at a, a building called Meadowbank and I think they gave me about a week's notice and I was put in a rather difficult position where the only way I could attend that selection day was by pulling a sickie. And uh, I'm, <laughs> I'm very sorry to my boss, Bill, uh, if you're listening. Uh, sorry, Bill, I'm, if you're listening, I'm, yeah. I'm sorry, but... Bill's, uh, now, Bill, Bill's now the uh, the chief financial director of uh, a big airline. <laughs> Making yeah, up. absolutely. So I'm, I'm giving myself a bad name. But um, it was the only way I could get there and there was no way 
that I was going to uh, pass up that opportunity. So I um, I phoned in with a, a croaky voice, told them that I wasn't going to be at work and uh, headed off on the tube to Heathrow and uh, I went through the selection with British Airways. Uh, how, how was the selection process with, with British Airways? It was tough, uh, which I know is probably stating the, the bleeding obvious, but um, it was a really, really challenging day. And um, I think possibly because it was so important to me, um, it meant so much for me to get through that day. The pressure that I felt as I walked into that building was just immense, absolutely immense. And I knew that realistically, I'd probably only get one shot at this and I had to be successful. And what would you say to people out there that maybe got some sort of selection process? And clearly that's the side that I run with, with my business, helping people um, apply for these selection processes. What would you say to people about preparing for these types of processes? I think in a nutshell, that is that is the answer. It's all about preparation. Um, I walked into that selection having spent as much time as I could preparing myself for what I was expecting to encounter and whether that was practicing some math tests, practicing some reasoning, practicing everything that I could think of, interview questions, working out the the type of things that I was expecting them to ask me and making sure that I had good answers which would impress them. And uh, that is genuinely the, the best advice that I can give is if you turn up at a selection day and you've not put that work in, you will make it incredibly challenging for yourself because you can bet your bottom dollar everyone else there will have done it yeah absolutely so whether you're a cadets uh, going through this it'll sound like a big plug this for the services that that i provide to people but preparation really is key and it's something that i learned from my military service days took into the commercial world with me and uh, the five p's which i won't read out but prior preparation prevents <laughs> you know what type of performance um but yeah absolutely uh it wasn't as 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 simple a um a win, though, when you ultimately found out you'd been successful with this application, as some might think. You've got this notification, hey, yeah, you've been successful, but there you are working for this big consultancy company. What was the sort of little barrier that was up against you? Yeah, funnily enough, it was actually my parents that were probably <laughs> the, uh, the the biggest uh, obstacle that I had to circumnavigate. And, and I guess now as a parent myself, I do understand when I look back uh, and reflect on it, but... The proposal that I was suggesting was that I was going to give up this fantastic salary working for this big blue chip company and I was going to basically go back to being a student again for another year, year and a half. I think the salary BA was offering for the cadet scheme was uh, about £30 a week and I can remember my dad's face when I first sat down and told them and I had to uh, negotiate very hard for them to see why it was the right thing for me to do and why I couldn't possibly contemplate passing up the opportunity that British Airways was going to give me. Wow, I mean, amazing thing. And, and to think if you probably lived out that career at Anderson Consulting now, I guess you'd, you'd be you know, in the higher, higher echelons if you'd been successful, maybe partner or something in a business, maybe earning huge sums of money. I mean, those types of firms pay big bucks for those at the top. Would that be sort of a fair assessment? Absolutely right. And I'm still in contact uh, with a couple of people who are still at uh, Anderson and they're incredibly successful people and they've done incredibly well for themselves. I think for me, Andrew, the, the big thing was I loved the lifestyle. I certainly loved the money, but 
the bottom line was the work that I was doing day to day, pretty much sat behind a computer coding and doing other bits and pieces. It didn't excite me. It didn't motivate me. And I realized that I didn't want to spend the rest of my life doing that. And that for me was the the big push, which uh, which got me on my way. Magda, I'm sure that uh, you also get these questions. I get hundreds of social media inquiries from aspiring pilots wanting to get into this uh, industry. What would you say if you've got any advice for any young people out there thinking about becoming a commercial pilot? Yeah, absolutely right. I do get uh, lots of people uh, contacting me, asking for advice, and I always make time to speak to people because I remember when I was contemplating it as a career, I spoke to lots of people, whether it was my brother or other people that who were already in that industry, because that advice is really important. And generally, I try to encourage people as much as possible, but I'm also, I try to give them a little bit of realism as well. And I tend to say three things to people. First of all, if you are contemplating a career in commercial aviation, um, first of all, make sure medically that you can do it. Um, there are sadly a few people that have their heart set on that career and then they get to do their first class one medical and there's some very hidden reason why they're not going to be able to do that and that obviously would be a very heart-wrenching to get all the way to a point where you think you're going to be breaking into that career and then a medical reason stops you so I would always advise people to invest in a, a class one medical to to check all is okay the second thing, which perhaps sounds a little bit strange, is I always say to people, if they haven't ever been in a light aircraft, go and do a trial flight. Because actually, a lot of people who think they want to be an airline pilot maybe haven't twigged that the first year at least of that career is going to be building hours and training in small aircraft. And the fact of the matter is there are a number of people that are not comfortable in small aircraft and uh, and actually the thought of spending 50, 60, 70 hours to do a PPL just may not be the right thing for them. And the third thing that I would also suggest to people is that they have a little reality check to make sure that they have got the competencies and they've got the attributes which are required to break into the industry because as with any industry in the world or any job in the world, not everybody is suited to it. And it's important to get an impartial assessment from somebody to check that, yes, you have got those attributes and those qualities which are are necessary to, to continue down that path. It's interesting you should say that. Again, at the risk of um, plugging some of the things that we do, we actually run a, a mini assessment called a pilot skills assessment for people looking to start flying training. And part of that is checking their aptitude, some aptitude testing, psychometric type um, testing. Uh, but we also put them through an interview, super friendly interview course. And we're looking for lots of evidence of various competencies. And for pe- people out there listening and don't know what competencies are, they're sort of skills, essentially, and qualities that you possess, which will mean you're likely to be successful with your flying training and onwards as a, as a commercial pilot. So, you know, for a relatively small outlay, certainly <laughs> compared to the amount of money spent to become a commercial pilot, it really is worth getting your class or medical, as Magdy says, going and having a flying lesson and considering having a, a mini pilot skills type assessment to uh, assess whether you are ready to start out on this flying training program um but there you are Magda you've you've um you've 
got your cadetship, you've convinced mum and dad, you've left Anderson Consulting and you're going through training with British Airways. Um, so how was your training and, and where were you based first? What, what sort of aeroplanes were you flying? Yeah, so the, the, the training was a quite incredible 12, 18 months of my life um, and, and a period of time that I will never, ever forget in terms of the experiences I had, the friendships that I built with people. I was uh, sent to um, Cranfield uh, to do my sort of frozen ATPL integrated course. And we were quite uh, an unusual course. There was 16 of us and all of us were sponsored, but just by different airlines. So there was myself and four colleagues who were all sponsored by British Airways and then some of the other guys and girls were sponsored by Air 2000, Caledonian, Air Tours. And it was the first time ever at Cranfield that they'd had an entire course sponsored. Normally, uh, sponsored students were mixed in with the self-sponsored students, and um, and there was normally a mix. So it was quite a, a unique uh, course for, for um, Cranfield. So you got through your training, and you sort of hit the front line, if you like, with British Airways. Where, where were you based? Yeah, so my first uh, base was uh, was the one that I was desperate for, and it was Manchester, which was uh, was pretty much where I was brought up as a child and, and where I grew up. So that was great for me because on from a personal point of view, I didn't have to relocate. I was still close to my family, my friends, all of my networks. And from a professional point of view, it was the most amazing first base uh, it was a small, very close-knit um, group of, of pilots. We flew with each other very frequently. Uh, we had a relatively small network, which you got to know very quickly. And it was just a lovely, almost like a flying club type atmosphere. And it's one which um, I always say to people, I never realised how good it was until I, I left and, and, and wasn't based there anymore. And, it, and I look back with great fondness of those first... Uh, those first sort of two years of my career at Manchester where I flew the 737, which was the most amazing first jet in terms of being forgiving and uh, allowing me to cut my teeth. And uh, yeah, overall, just an incredible experience and one that, again, I will treasure always. Yeah, Jim, well, Manchester, for all my personal friends that know me, is sort of where I consider my sort of, it's not my birthplace, my birthplace is Chesterfield in Derbyshire, but um, but actually Manchester is where I consider my home, even though I'm now down down south in Surrey, um, but it's a great city, and I flew there for almost 10 years with Thomas Cook Airlines, again, some fantastic people, real small base uh, atmosphere, um, doing some great flying, I really miss those days, actually, but you, um, ultimately, that two years, it was just a two-year period, period and then Manchester base closed you know commercial decisions etc for for um, British Airways at least and you then headed on down south to move on to 757 and 767 so tell us a bit more about that Magdy. Yeah so um, the the final nail in the coffin for uh, the, the the BA base at Manchester was September the 11th and after that uh, commercially it just became unviable and the decision was made to close it as a mainline base and I can remember, although I knew it was coming, um, opening a letter one morning um, and basically being told that as of next month, you are now going to be flying out of Heathrow rather than Manchester. And as you can imagine, that was a, was quite a shock, uh, even for, for me as a sort of a, a young, unattached guy without family or kids at that time. It was still quite a shock and um, the prospect of, of, of 
everything changing in terms of my professional life, not flying with the people that I had become friends with or working with the cabin crew that I knew or even the dispatchers and the ground staff, uh, all of those things were going to be taken away from me and it was now a case of um, being sort of thrown into the uh, into the big wide world. I know it's um, something I think that people getting into the industry need to give, again, thought to. Um, obviously, awful times for so many pilots out there at the moment across the world uh, and cabin crew and, and engineers, anyone associated with the aviation industry. Um, but, um, yeah, it's, it's a job where you're going to find yourself moving at some point probably to another company or another base or certainly another aircraft type so um, it's worth if you're looking at getting into this industry getting in with your eyes wide open that it might not be the most stable career choice if you're looking for stability it's probably well almost certainly not the career for you but it brings so many other awesome things of course and um one of the most awesome things for you, approximately five years from first getting your private pilot's license at Welshpool was five years later, the opportunity to have your real dream come true. What was that, Magby? Yeah, so um, about that time, um, about five years after that PPL, um, I was very, very fortunate enough to uh, have a bid to to fly the, the 747 accepted. And as a very... Uh, inexperienced and uh, still kind of wet behind the ears first officer I embarked on my conversion course onto uh, onto a very iconic aircraft what was your first memory having sort of done your simulator training and um, walking out to the real jumbo jet what was your first memory of that experience yeah you know again as a, as a confident and uh, and fairly sort of happy-go-lucky first officer I took all of the training in my stride, the simulators, the ground school, all fine. And then the first day that I pitched up to to fly this incredible aircraft, I remember being taken outside to do the walk round and I just stood there in absolute awe and almost shock that this this aircraft was just off the scale compared to anything else that I'd ever flown. And at that point, I think it really dawned on me exactly what it was that I was about to do. Isn't it amazing though? I mean, uh, I, I think testament to the training that, that major airlines provide for their pilots now and the simulator devices that they can use, that you can go from you know a simulator one day to the very next day, walking out to an aeroplane you've never seen before and then something, again, as huge <laughs> um, uh, and iconic as a 747 and step into that aeroplane and go and fly it. It's just incredible, isn't it? Absolutely. And um, it's uh, until you pitch up on that first day, uh, although in your head you think you know what's coming and you've prepared for it, nothing quite will ever set you up for the the sheer size of that aircraft and, and walking around it. Actually, I thought, my goodness, this is this is quite scary. It is. I remember the first time um, I stepped into 787, the very first time. I've not even been on one as a passenger, not even had a look around one. The first time I stepped onto one was to be the pilot flying, taking off out of Heathrow to head off to India. <laughs> and I just thought to myself, this is, you know, even though I've been flying a long time by then, I thought this is, you know, just incredible that we can do this. And I remember as the wheels came up and the 787 cockpit is super quiet and it was just almost silence and uh, looking out over the city of London and looking through the head-up display of this uh, 787 and thinking, wow, this is amazing. I just think it's incredible that, that we can do that and do it all so safely as well. It is... Uh, Obviously, uh, an incredible uh, lifestyle as an airline pilot anyway, but we're also both incredibly lucky to 
um, fly big long haul aircraft. Before we talk a bit more about where where you know some of the places are we visited and some of your favourite approaches which you want to break into, I want to hear some really cool stats about the jumbo. If I could, Magdi, can you give us some stats that perhaps people out there, even if the pilots have never heard of before? Yeah, I, th- I think the 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 thing that really resonates for me about the jumbo is. Um, Yes, of course, it's a massive aircraft, but it's also incredibly flexible in terms of um, what it can do. Uh, so one day you could be taking off at max takeoff weight, 400 tonnes, and you could be heading off on a 14, 15-hour flight to Singapore. And then, as I've done in my last few months of my jumbo career, I've been taking a, a very light jumbo and landing it at certain airstrips, which are... 1800 meters in length and it's that amazing flexibility which has always fascinated me with the jumbo and its versatility and it's just a lovely aircraft to fly um it's a thirsty aircraft which is probably the reason for its demise um not many people will realize but uh in the cruise we're burning round about 10 tons every hour um but it is just the most wonderful pilot's aircraft to fly we can take off in as little as 75 metres of visibility and we can land in as little as 75 metres visibility. And bearing in mind that's all done, uh, or certainly the landing is done by an autopilot, which is now probably 30 or 40 years old and uh, it still does an incredibly good job when we do need to auto land. Uh, it always, always looks after us. It's amazing, isn't it? 400 tonnes. I mean, but to hear the fuel burn, yeah, you can absolutely see, I think a 787 burns about five tonnes of fuel per hour, albeit we're not carrying as many uh, customers or as much uh, freight, but um, because it's a smaller aircraft, but but still you can see the, the fuel burn difference. But 400 tonnes, I just think it's incredible. It's something that heavy can get into the air, but um, amazing. And I say, you know, both of us lucky to have this long haul lifestyle and I've flown to places and spent time in places that would be on people's bucket list to visit just once in their lifetime how about you Magdi what are there any sort of standout places that you can think of from your career so far yeah I've been very fortunate uh when I first went onto the jumbo as a first officer it was a massive fleet 54 aircraft I think at its peak and it went everywhere it did most of the long-haul flying in British Airways and in terms of my personal favorites it's difficult to 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 name just a few but I can remember the first time I landed in Sydney uh, that was a real big moment for me I did feel like I had come all the way around the earth to the kind of the furthest point uh, in terms of places that I loved going to well Cape Town uh, is the most amazing place to arrive into in the morning uh, as the sun's just starting to rise you uh, you make an approach and normally some fantastic views of Table Mountain and the and the coast and that's a really special place and also a lovely place to spend time uh, the people in that part of the world are so lovely and so welcoming and i i've thoroughly enjoyed every minute that i've spent there and in terms of the flying side probably um uh, the approach into new york which uh, many people are, are aware of the canazi that's one that uh, tends to test us as pilots and one that uh, you always look forward to but also look forward to successfully landing off it because um at new york nothing is ever guaranteed 
Yeah, so that's the case with a lot of uh, American bases. They're multiple runways, multiple approach changes, runway changes. It's pretty testing. And uh, if you're really familiar with it, doing it every other day, hey, no problems. But when you're not, it can certainly be a challenging environment. I, I mean... Um, I'm, I'm, I, I genuinely feel so lucky to have gone to, to some of these places, not New York yet as it happens, but I've flown approaches into Santiago in Chile, um, where I've been gliding in the Andes. I've been off to Rio and had the chance to go hang gliding um, with this really cool guy who goes by the name of Coconut. And uh, I've been hot air ballooning in Mexico City or spending time with some just wonderful people in India you know just uh, and I think one of the things I love most is getting to go to these places but getting to engage with the people that live there that work there that live and breathe it because that's where they're from and and getting to experience new cultures it, I feel genuinely privileged and I'm sure you, you'd feel the same Magdi. Absolutely yeah it's, it's, a, it's a true privilege and, and one that I, uh, I, I never take for granted. So one of the really cool things, Magdi, about British Airways, which most of the airlines don't do, in fact, I don't know one that does, maybe you do, but it's the fact that you can become a trainer, so train other pilots, including captains, when you're a first officer, which is really quite cool. And in 2011, you actually took advantage of this opportunity. I was just wondering if you could tell us a bit more about why you chose this particular pathway. Yeah, sure. So um, it was something that I'd always had in the back of my mind, um, I've always had an interest in the sort of instructing side of things. And I got to a point in my BA career where I knew I was still some time away from potential command. And I felt like it would be a great opportunity for me to develop some other skills. Training was something that I always had in my mind as a, a potential avenue. And uh, I was just fortunate enough that uh, at the time on my fleet, there were opportunities for training co-pilots and I went through another very vigorous selection procedure and was fortunate enough to be offered a, a position. What is training to become a trainer like? I've heard it's a pretty tough course. Yeah it's really tough. Uh, I can say hand on heart um, throughout my entire aviation career the trainer training uh, that I underwent was the most challenging by a long long way. It's a really grueling and uh, and very challenging course. Uh, it takes um, a good two or three months, and the work rate required is massive. And you kind of come out at the end of it a little bit beaten up uh, in terms of <laughs> perhaps questioning your ability to do the job. And I think that yeah. is potentially something they do on purpose. Uh, it keeps you quite grounded, and when you first enter the uh, the fray. Uh, you are aware that actually you are at the beginning of your development as a trainer and uh, there's going to be lots of learning hoops to jump through once you've actually got out there on the line. Yeah, absolutely. I can imagine um, that going through that process would have been so challenging and leaving you feeling a bit beaten up, I guess, but all in a positive way, but really helps you when you then meet real live pilots that you are training and assessing because, of course, you get so many different people don't you in in the airline world that's what makes it so great but also can make it quite challenging to manage different people I guess at times yeah absolutely uh it's it, it's a real cliche but um in terms of the training job uh you turn up and you never quite know what you're going to get on the day and uh one of the, one of the benefits of being a trainer is that you sit there and you watch some outstanding pilots 
perform in an outstanding manner. Uh, and you also get to learn if if mistakes are going to be made on a flight deck, how they may come about by having the advantage of sitting there watching from behind. You do realise that uh, certainly, although it sometimes feels like it, none of us are infallible. And uh, for all of us, our, our next mistake is literally just waiting in the wings to uh, to trip you up if you let it. Yeah, but the training standards are so, so good that, uh, you know, modern day training standards are so good that we generally uncover these problems before they become a problem in the real aircraft. And I'm always blown away by how we can do things so safely. And it is a testament to the training that that we receive and, and modern day training techniques. What is it you really love uh, about being a trainer, Magdi? I think for me, that the, the, the bit of the job that I really, really uh, enjoy is that ability to to help somebody that's maybe struggling in a particular area or perhaps they've got a a certain part of their competency matrix which has always been a weak area and been able to give some one-on-one coaching assistance you can see over the period of of a sim detail you can see people improve markedly and you can see the confidence come back to that particular pilot and often at the end of a detail people will say I wish I'd had that instruction 10 years ago, 20 years ago, because it would have made a massive difference to me. And and those are the reasons why I do the job, because that feedback is, uh, it makes you feel like you've really helped somebody and you've really made a difference. I think that's one of the most rewarding things. I'm not a simulator uh, or line training trainer, obviously, but even through the flight deck wingman business, helping people, really get it when they understand why they're not performing as well at an interview or where they can make those incremental gains during a group exercise to really impress the people that are assessing them and ultimately you know, steer their future success. Um, it is one of the most rewarding things is when you see somebody really get it because everyone's different. What are some of the things that you would find most challenging as a trainer, Magby? I think it's fair to say that uh, as trainers, the most difficult part of our job is it's on the very rare occasions where we have to manage uh, poor performance or performance that's not as, as strong as, as people would like. And that's always difficult. Um, inevitably, in those circumstances, it's quite common that that particular pilot has got other stuff going on that can be a distraction. And all of us are, 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 are human beings. We all have everyday life going on in the background. And so sometimes people get to a position where there's so much going on for them that it's a real difficulty for them to focus on on doing the job to the standard that they normally do it. Um, and, that, and that area is difficult and, it, and it's the one that I, I least enjoy, um, but it's an important part of the job. And at the end of the day, as as trainers, we are there to ensure that standards are upheld. And if people aren't meeting those standards, then we really want to understand why. And then we can do something about it and we can help that person get back to where they would want to be. Helping people sometimes is a real challenge, particularly when they're going through, you know, emotional, professional pressures, etc. And um, getting people to buy into a particular training methodology, I have constantly found that to be a challenge. Not not with the majority of people, just occasionally you're going to have someone that really doesn't buy into it. Um, and I think the most recent time I can think of that was about. 18 months ago when Thomas Cook tragically went into administration and having worked there for almost 10 years, I knew a lot of the pilots affected, or most of the pilots, and we handed out some free training on our courses to over 100 of these pilots. And I remember one particular um, guy that I'd flown with, Captain, 
great operator, fantastic pilot, really nice person to work with, well respected by the crew um, and everyone that he came into touch with. And we were working through some competency-based interview questions and and this guy just wasn't buying into the training and said, you know, this is all B, <laughs> S, <laughs> to put it in polite terms. And, and, and I thought, God, how do I disarm this person that's just not buying into this but to a point where I'm you know providing something that's going to give real benefit and the only way I did it was really essentially to say do you know what I agree with you it is someone of your experience who I know is a great operator who I know is well respected by everybody who genuinely does things safely and for the best commercial interests of the company and the customers you shouldn't be in this position but all I'm trying to do now is, and he hadn't been through a process, a modern selection day process, of course, in well over 25 years since he had an interview. Um, but I said, what I'm trying to do is to help get you over the line and make the best out of the situation. And, and he did get it in the end, but it wasn't an easy win. And I guess you must find that frequently, Magdy, that type of challenge. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And one of the, one of the core principles of being a trainer is... Um, it's drilled into us right from day one that if you are trying to get across a message, trying to add some value, that's only going to be successful if that particular pilot buys into it, if you get agreement. If at the end of the day you're sat there telling somebody you should be doing X or should be doing Y, if they don't agree or you can't show them why they should be doing that, then you're kind of wasting your time. And again, it does happen occasionally where you just come to a, a stalemate with somebody. They cannot see what it is you're saying and maybe they don't want to see what it is you're saying. And there are times where as a trainer, you know, despite your best efforts, you just have to accept that person is not going to buy into what you're saying. Yeah, it is It is a challenge, but there are some great initiatives and I personally really like the way that training is evolving in the airline industry to make things safer. And we see a lot of airline industry techniques, you know, being used in the medical profession. And um, But almost yearly, it seems that there's a new style of training and that's happening at the moment. What's, what's the sort of changes that are coming about at the moment, Magdi? Yeah, you're absolutely right, Andrew. There's been uh, quite a sea change in the uh, in the way we now go about training and assessing pilots. Historically, um, in terms of simulator training, the intention has always been to try to expose pilots to as many non-normal and emergency situations as possible in the hope that if they were ever to encounter those in real life on the aircraft, they've already seen it in the simulator. And I think the evolution that we've seen in recent years is now an acceptance that with the best will in the world, we cannot possibly recreate every feasible non-normal. And I think certain incidents such as um, Sully's uh, excursion into the Hudson was a great example of that. (laughs) I bet you Sully had never, ever practiced ditching a 320 simulator into a river. What the... Uh, evidence-based training methodology does is it says well let's make sure that all of our pilots have strong competencies uh, and we assess our pilots uh, in a matrix of competencies and if they've got those competencies that gives them the best possible toolkit to deal with whatever might be thrown at them out on the out on the aircraft and it in terms of uh, as pilots what it results in is far more 
realistic and more value training. We are looking at scenarios which allow pilots to demonstrate that matrix and, if necessary, um, undergo a little bit of development if that's what's needed. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Magdi. And in uh, 2018, another challenge uh, came for you, and that was the challenge of becoming a captain some 20 years after you first joined British Airways. How much of a challenge was the command training course for you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, By definition, uh, it's going to be a challenge for anybody that undertakes it. Uh, If it's not, then there's something wrong. And it's a big change in role. we talk a lot about uh, flight decks and multi-crew environments, but by definition, there has to be uh, a slight authority gradient on the flight deck uh, in terms of having a captain and a first officer. And a lot of the command training is all about how you get that right, because if you don't get that right, then potentially the ability to establish a, an environment which is pleasant and effective to work in is is lost. Um, so the actual flying the aircraft for me wasn't a particular issue because I'd already done 17 years on the jumbo. And so actually I could fly the aircraft. There was a little bit of difference in terms of swapping seats, but that's relatively uh, easily sort of brushed away. It's really that change in role, the responsibility, and the fact that you are ultimately there to ensure that the team on the flight deck and in throughout the cabin is all working together to uh, to, to give the safest and, and the best possible outcome yeah and um taking this sort of forward now a couple of years after becoming a captain one of the coolest things to happen for you was to captain one of the very last jumbos to leave the british airways fleet and i know it's been such an emotive time for so many people for, for so many reasons this last year across the airline industry but the end of the 747 was a particularly emotive time for so many people and uh, just a few months ago, I was standing on top of uh, a very cold hilltop, frantically attempting to keep my girlfriend on side, insisting that your timekeeping really wasn't that bad. When three hours after the planned arrival time, and in your defence, mind you, the weather was pretty rubbish <laughs> for the three hours leading up to your arrival. Uh, but this imposing shape of this jumbo jet appeared behind the trees, landing into Dunsfold Airfield in the south here, just a, you know, a small airfield, which is not really used for very much these days uh, not for aircraft anyway and I saw the it was the Landor liveried aircraft for those that know what that is uh, and you were in command of this aircraft and you appeared behind the t- trees um, and, and flew a circuit and then went back around to fly and approach the land what what was that moment like for you? Yeah it's uh, one of those um, memories that I will certainly treasure uh, for, the, for the rest of my life. A very mixed emotion, if I'm being perfectly honest. Uh, so on one hand, um, immense sadness that, for me, that was going to be my last ever sector on, a, on an aircraft that I'd flown for the past 17 years and, and truly loved. And although I'd had some time to prepare for that mentally, actually, it didn't really set in until I got on that aircraft at Cardiff for the last time to uh, to take off and to and to fly to Dunsfold, so it was difficult and it was sad and it kind of was the the, the final um, page of that chapter closing for me. On the other hand, I was incredibly privileged to be involved in that flight. It was very high profile and was embraced by the public and lots and lots of interest in it. 
And in terms of having to close that chapter of, of my career, the ability to do that last flight was a massive part of that. And I, I genuinely feel very privileged and very lucky to have been involved in it. Yeah, I mean, it was amazing to watch, you know, um, an industry colleague and a, a friend of mine command this aircraft. And actually, you didn't actually land the aircraft, did you? It was the first officer landing the aircraft. But again, that uh, whole being in command of an aircraft and the training that that, um, that that all airline pilots undertake, you know, that's that's what's great about the industry really and um there were some uh, there were a lot of people i can tell you on the top of that hill with some very big cameras um taking photographs and and they all were just uh, blown away and, and emotional at the end of, of of an era for sure life does go on though and um you know i think one of the great things about aviation is that there's so much variety in it and i remember my last flight in a in a harrier and actually i didn't know it was going to be my last flight for various reasons but I think uh, I was upset at the time because that's the last time I flew this amazing aircraft. It was the last time I was going to take off an aircraft carrier or indeed land on one. But what's happened since, you know, flying lots of different commercial aircraft, getting into this fantastic sport of gliding that I'm so passionate about, aviation does bring some, you know, amazing challenges. And we'll close this podcast off uh, shortly with ask you what's coming next, Magdi. But there's an awful lot of pilots out there they have tragically lost their jobs across the industry, across the world, in fact, due to this awful pandemic and the effects it's had on the aviation industry. But of course, my hope is that a lot of them are going to be returning to flight deck in, in the near future. Lots of airlines put their pilots through simulator assessments as part of their recruitment process. And I know that certainly from the clients that come to Flight Deck Wingman that are moving forward through past the interview stage and now moving on towards the sim assessment. And of course, there's an awful lot of sleepless nights and lots of them panic about whether they're going to be able to fly the aeroplane accurately, you know, manually fly this aeroplane at slightly at odds with what we do day to day. But this is a simulator recruitment process. What would you say to pilots out there that maybe worry about that, that type of process, Magdi? Yeah, I, I totally agree with what you say. Um, I, I have been involved in recruitment um, during my career and pilots are always the same. They always fear that their manual flying is not going to be to the standard that is required. And interestingly enough, uh, based on my experiences, very few pilots fail a sim assessment solely because of their manual flying. And it kind of links nicely with the evidence-based training that we were talking about a few minutes ago and I tend to see that when people's manual flying is deteriorating or it's not to the standard that they would wish inevitably there's a root cause and that might be for example poor workload management so they are putting themselves under too much pressure by taking on too many tasks and not delegating effectively to their colleague or to their partner. Um, another example could be a, a loss of situational awareness and that makes it very difficult to fly the aircraft accurately. I tend to say to most uh, experienced pilots who are going for a sim assessment, you wouldn't have got to where you are in your career if you can't fly an aircraft and I, and I genuinely believe that and so I try to encourage uh, people who are coming up for sim assessment to just be aware of those other competencies, particularly the SA, the situational awareness, particularly the workload management, because those are very common root causes of why people's manual flight 
may not be as good as they would want it to be. Absolutely. I mean, and for any non-pilots listening out there, I think we can all sort of relate to this in day-to-day life, just driving the car down the road. If if all of a sudden, you know, telephone call rings in your car, police cars trying to overtake you, there's other things happening on the road. It's quite often that you become distracted. Maybe your, fl- your driving rather doesn't uh, go according to plan. And how many people would you say you've assessed, Magdi, through that process to have that sort of viewpoint? Yeah, a lot of people. I've I've had the the pleasure of assessing a lot of pilots, and as I said to you, very rarely do I see somebody who is unsuccessful because they can't fly an aircraft. It's inevitably because of something else. And I think, from my point of view, the sad part of that is that those root causes are quite easily solved just with a little bit of awareness of how workload management can be managed, how situational awareness can be enhanced and maintained. Those individuals would find their manual flight control would be significantly better than it than it was on the day. So perhaps needs a bit more thought than just going and having a couple of hours practice in a simulator before a sim assessment. Perhaps a bit more thought around those processes for any pilots out there thinking about preparing for any upcoming recruitment processes. Absolutely. Um, Magdi, we're now going to move on to the winging it section, um, which is a section of the interview where we ask you random question that I'd like you to give your best stab at answering, which is... Uh, well, in this case today, it's slightly aviation related, but I'm not going to give it away too much. So are you ready for your winging it question? I think so. Okay, here we go then. If you had the choice between two superpowers, being invisible or flying, which would you choose and why? I think I'll have to go with flying because, uh, as we've talked about, that's always been my passion and uh, that desire to uh, to be up there in the sky is still as strong now as it was when I first got into this amazing career uh, sort of 20 years ago. If you were invisible, what would you do? <laughs> I'm not sure I can answer that. <laughs> I think I'd go and try and get myself on board one of those um, Elon Musk uh, starships and blast off into the uh, blast off to the space station or something, see if I could make it back without getting noticed. <laughs> Uh, Magdi, so I said I'd come to what's happening next. So uh, end of the Jumbo fleet, new things happening for you. What's coming next for you? Yeah, a really exciting chapter is about to open for me. Uh, It's been a a difficult few months, as you alluded to, for everybody in this industry. And uh, and I don't think we're quite out of the woods yet. Um, Obviously, the Jumbo being retired meant that, uh, in essence, I was left without a job. So it's been quite a nervous um, wait whilst uh, British Airways have crunched the figures and worked out where they need pilots. And about a month ago, I got a email inviting me to start a A320 type rating, which uh, I'll be doing this month. Uh, so that was fantastic news for me. Very, very grateful and very thankful that I once again have got a, a new type to, to carry on my career on. Uh, I'm aware that uh, there's a lot of pain in the industry at the moment, so um, just the opportunity to carry on flying is uh, is very welcome. And um, yeah, just genuinely excited and, and can't wait to get going. And uh, after sort of 22 years of flying, this is going to be my first ever experience of an Airbus. So 
a little bit of trepidation, uh, a little bit of excitement, but uh, I shall report back and, and let you know how that was. <laughs> Welcome to the 21st century after flying a 1960s bit of tech for the last 20 years. <laughs> I'm sure you'll cope with absolutely fine. Well, Magdi, thanks so much for appearing on for Flying Out Loud. It's been an absolute joy and, and so exciting to hear about your career. And I'm really looking forward to seeing where the future goes with the Airbus and beyond. Um, it's been great to have you. Thanks very much, Magdi. Thanks, Andrew.